Welcome to Burke Community Church. My name is Michael Coffey. I'm one of the pastors here. I am the pastor of the adult ministries and the senior pastor, Dr. Marty Baker, will be back next week. So I encourage you to visit or tune in next week. And when he returns, you'll love it. Uh, I always love his teaching. I suspect you will too if you've not heard him. And to those of you that are at home uh, watching this, I long for the day that we get to be back together. I appreciate those of you that are in the audience here today coming. And so before we begin, in light of a lot of the activities that have been going on in our nation here the last week, I would like to read a statement that I wrote um, before I begin my sermon. As members of Burke Community Church, we send our deepest condolences to the family of George Floyd. The peaceful protests that have formed throughout this country have demonstrated a collective need for people of all ages, faiths, race, social and economic backgrounds to band together in protest of the injustice of his death. This tragedy affects all of us and sadly proves that the cruelty of all types of racism still exists in this country. As followers of Christ, we must choose to align with biblical truth that life is a gift from God and that we are all made in his image. That injustice and oppression must be defeated by the powerful love of Christ and his truth, which is the only real hope for changing individuals, families, groups, and nations. For four months, this country has fought hard to stop the spread of a deadly virus and to save lives. Unlike COVID-19, the plague of injustice is not invisible. Christians should speak out in support of equality and justice and press every elected official and authority to fight the plague of injustice with the same intensity used to battle an unseen virus. This wrongful tragedy does not reflect on the majority of good men and women in law enforcement who carry out their duties with honor. We call upon civil authorities to investigate this death carefully and to ensure accountability. Additionally, legitimate, peaceful protests have a place in the history and the values of this nation. Burning and rioting and looting do not advance human dignity nor racial equality. Instead, they cost people their livelihoods and cause unnecessary injury and even additional deaths. The power of Christ and his love are the means of achieving life, liberty, and equality for all. I ask you to pray with me. We lift up our nation to you, O Lord. We pray for the pain and the hurt that we've seen demonstrated this last week. We pray for your spirit to guide and lead us as a nation, for your spirit to calm the angry waters that seem to be tossing and turning. We pray for justice to prevail in our nation. We pray for we as the people of Christ and the people of God to do what is right at all times, to speak what is right, that we would model as you did the love of God to a lost world and through that, to affect change one person at a time. Until you're appearing, we pray this in your name. Amen. What a title of a sermon, What God Really Wants. Like I could really tell you 
what God really wants. Uh, I'll go straight to the scripture for most of this sermon. There's a quote by a French mathematician, physicist, and inventor, Blaise Pascal. Uh, it's sometimes misquoted by a lot of folks. So I'll shorten it down. They'll try to help them out by talking about there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person that can't be filled with any created thing, but only by the creator made known through Jesus Christ. Well, here's the actual quote of what he says, if I can get that up there. And it's, it's kind of like that, but he talks about the fact that once man had true happiness and then it became lost, and now he's running around and he's trying to fill it with everything around him. But since, I like the way he says it, since it's an infinite abyss, then it can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. So man was created, he has this need for God. When Jesus was asked what was the greatest commandment, most of you know it, but we'll bring it up here, he talked about the fact that the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and the foremost commandment. Now, a lot of people will read that and think, yeah, I don't think I can do that. It wasn't really an option, you know. If you'd said that to Jesus at the moment he said that, he wasn't going to say, you know, you're right. That's probably a little too hard. My bad. Let me see if I can change that up for you. This is what he said was the greatest commandment of what we were to do, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. Now, we need relationships in this life, but we need a relationship with God even more. He's our creator, and he created us, and he created us with a need that can only be filled by him. It's the way he wired us. There is nothing else that will satisfy the desire except him. But it's amazing how many people will spend their entire lives hearing about God, around people that say they know God, but they don't see where he has anything at all to do with their day-to-day -day life. The advantages of a relationship with God are many. He's available 24-7. He's always there if we want to talk to him or seek him out. Our relationship with him is internal, so he's never far away. He tells us that he knows us better than we know ourselves, and then he proves it by telling us, you don't even have any idea how many hairs are upon your head. But he does. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And so the psalmist in Psalm 139 correctly noted, Oh Lord, you've searched me. You've known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path, my lying down. You're intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all. You've enclosed me behind and before you've laid your hand upon me. You don't have to read very much in the scriptures to start gaining a grasp of the fact that God is all-powerful. He's all-wise. He's good. He's good. He's all-sufficient. He needs nothing. So that's the incredible fact that he needs nothing, and yet he desires to have a permanent, intimate relationship with us. 
The Westminster Catechism says it with brilliant simplicity when it says man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. He created you to have a relationship with you. His original design was to have a relationship with people so he could dwell in their mix, manifesting his glory. But we know the story of the garden. Sin short-circuited that opportunity. And for centuries after that, when you think about the early pages of Scripture in the book of Genesis, there's only a handful of people who even get mentioned as people that were seeking after God. For all the people that were born, as the race multiplied and grew throughout the world, the known world at that time, there's only a handful of people who seem to have any interest in having a relationship with God. We hear about people like Enoch, who it says walked with God to the point and walked with him so well that God just took him away one day from the earth. We hear about Noah, that God saved him and his family. We hear about Abraham. It's interesting that Second Chronicles 16 says that all through those years and still today, the eyes of the Lord rove to and fro throughout the earth to strengthen the hearts of those who belong to him, who seek him. That it's a continual activity of God that he's always looking over humankind, looking for who he can strengthen, who he can help, depending on if they're actually seeking after him. In the entire Old Testament, only two people were referred to as friends of God, Abraham and Moses, out of all the people that are there. The Almighty's desire to have an intimate relationship comes through, though, page after page after page of the scriptures. When people seem to not be interested for hundreds of years, only a handful here and there in the pages of scripture, he one day, as a picture of grace, picked the nation of Israel as a nation that he said, you'll be my nation and I will be your God. He made that promise to Abraham back when the nation of Israel was a mom and pop operation. Abraham and his wife, there wasn't even a kid yet, but he told him, I'm going to make your offspring like the stars in heaven. You're going to have kings that are going to come forth from you. You're not going to be able to count the descendants that come from it. And he followed through on that. But he didn't pick Israel as a nation because they were the best or anything. In fact, it's a picture of grace that I picked you, not for any particular reason. It was my good grace that chose you. But he initiated a plan that I'm going to be your God and I'm going to dwell with you. And so he makes his intentions clear that he's going to do that. And he explains uh, how he's going to do that in a series of texts, mainly out of the book of Exodus. He explains what his intention is. In Exodus 29, verses 45 and 46, he says, I will dwell among the sons of Israel, and I will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Why? So that I might dwell with them. Here it is again. Seeking the relationship that was lost in the garden, I'm looking for a people that will... Let me be God to them. They will be my people. I will literally dwell with them. So he tells them a little bit later uh, in Exodus 25, sorry, earlier in Exodus 25, 8, I'm going to have you construct a sanctuary for me. Why? There it is again, so that I may dwell among them. And then he takes steps to initiate a covenant so that he can dwell with the people. In chapter 19, we read about the offer that he makes to the nations. He tells them, 
You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you where? I brought you to myself. You were slaves, but I brought you to myself. I wanted a relationship with you. I chose you as the nation I would have that relationship with. Now then, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so teach this to the sons of Israel. He's explaining to them, this is my intention. We're going to have a covenant together that I'm going to do this. It's an agreement. We're making an agreement. I'm going to keep my end of it. And then, as you look at it, he has very concrete ways that he shows picture-wise that he's going to follow through in this, that this is what he wants, that this is his heart's desire. He shows because when they do make the tabernacle under his exact instructions, all the curtains, all the instruments, the altar, everything like that, he tells them, put it smack dab in the center of the nation. It's a very visual picture that I am dwelling with my people. I am there among them. I want to be right in the middle of it. So he locates the tabernacle right in the middle of the camp as they're moving around and as they move out. Finally, his response to the completed tabernacle. As part of this, he wants to show that I'm meaning this, I'm going to do this. And so in Exodus 40, he erected the court all around the tabernacle and he hung up the veil for the gateway of the court. Thus Moses finished the work. Tabernacle is finished. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. You know, when you think about the picture of just how brilliant that would be that suddenly the presence of God comes down to this tent in the desert. He does the same thing later in the temple when Solomon is there praying. Suddenly it's so filled with the presence of the Lord that you can't go into it. It's that staggering that he's, in a sense, moving in. I told you I was coming, I told you I wanted to dwell with my people, and now here it is, a very visible expression that I've done that, that I'm coming in. He did it in the tabernacle in the desert, he did it in the temple when Solomon completed that. But could there be a problem with God dwelling with his people? Yeah, yeah, he's holy. You know anything about the history of Israel and the history of the church and the history of me and the history of you? We're not. And God cannot dwell as a holy God with sin without provision being made. So the whole ceremonial system, the design, the uh, furnishings of the temple, the instruments that were used, the sacrifices, God is the one who brought that to be. We didn't dream it up. Man didn't dream it up. God did it. He did it so that he could dwell with his people who were sinful. So he created a sacrifice system so he could be with them. 
Where did Moses used to meet with God before the tabernacle was built, besides the mountain that he would go to to get the tablets? Do you remember where he used to meet with God? He set a tent up way outside the camp. He would go there. The cloud would still come down. Moses and God would meet. It was still called the tent of meeting, but it wasn't in the middle of the Israelites. It was way outside. It's a picture that until you get this tabernacle, this sacrificial system up and running, I'm not coming in among you as a holy God. I'm out here. But you know the history of Israel. They have a cloud with them always. Fire at night, cloud during the day, food every morning. And yet the history of Israel is that the majority of the Israelites at the most took it for granted that God chose to dwell with them. And some were in open rebellion. The whole history of the prophets that you read time and time again is that they've gone away from what they should do. They don't seem to want to have a relationship with God. You see God talking to them all the time, book of Isaiah, something like that, that come back, though your sins are as scarlet, they can be white as snow. We can have this relationship that I want to have with you, but your sin is causing problems. They didn't seem to care, so eventually God told them, Enough of your sacrifices. I don't need your sacrifices. What I want is the relationship. And then he let the whole sacrificial system be taken over as Israel was taken away in captivity. Temples torn down. Ark of the Covenant goes away. Who knows where? What happened to it? It's just, you see God saying, you don't want the relationship with me. I don't want the ritual without the relationship. We'll let it just go away. 400 years, no prophet speaking. But God's plan was always that he was going to have relationship with his people. When you think about the history of the fact that Israel, for the most part, seemed to ignore, take for granted, or even despise the fact that God wanted to dwell with them, it's much the same as I was referring to earlier after the loss of innocence in the garden. You did have people that took seriously their relationship with the Lord and they're mentioned in scripture and you see that the Lord blessed them and that that was a relationship that he took joy in people like Moses or Joshua or Caleb or Samuel or kings like David or Asa Jehoshaphat Joaz Uzziah Hezekiah Josiah they had intimacy they had blessings from that relationship with the Lord but the sad history is that most of the Israelites didn't really desire for God to dwell with them or kind of took it for granted. I I grew up in the South in uh, Georgia, and everybody in the South, whenever I first became a Christian, communicated to me that, yeah, I know and love Jesus, but I, once again, don't see where that has anything to do with my day-to-day life. <laughs> so, so what? It's kind of the same attitude here. But those who responded to God's love positively... The fellowship with him was indescribably precious. Think about Psalm 23, you know, very common psalm that most of us know, uh, at least portions of. David's talking about the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down, green pastures. He restores my soul. There's this relationship tone to the whole psalm. And even in the darker part of it, that even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear evil because you're with me. 
You're dwelling with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. The other psalmist from time of captivity when people were far away from Jerusalem, it's still an expression of wanting to be with God. And if you're used to worshiping at the temple, Psalm 42 talks about somebody that can't do that. They can't get there now, but my desire is to still have a relationship with God. So he says, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? I can't go back to where I used to worship. I'm away from there, but my soul still thirsts for you. There's a lot of people that are experiencing that right now through this COVID-19 plague that we're having to deal with. Yeah, they can watch us online, but something is missing. They have a longing to come and be here at church once again. And I pray that God will enable us as a nation to get out from under the tyranny of this virus so that we can do that again. But over time, as you look at the prophets, you see that, once again, it's a constant calling back. Come back, come back, come back. He wants to have a relationship with you. Example after example in the scriptures, whether it's Hosea or whatever. And so God accepted, it seemed like, for a long time that Israel really didn't necessarily want to have a relationship with him, not as he wanted to have, certainly not with all their heart, their mind, their strength, their soul. But he always still purposed that that's what I'm going to do. This has always been the game plan. I've not changed what I plan to do. So what did he do next? Praise be to God. He came to us in the form of Jesus Christ, the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us. I'm going to come. I'm going to literally dwell with you now. And so the Lord came. And it's interesting to me, in the beginning of his ministry, if you look at Mark 3, that's one of many places, at the beginning of his ministry, it says he appointed 12 so they could be with him. Same theme being carried on here as the Lord, Emmanuel, is here with us. He's having his 12 disciples appointed so they can be with him. You want to do an interesting word study sometimes, just look in the New Testament and all the Gospels, how many times the phrase with him appears. John writing about that says in John 1.14, the word became flesh and he dwelt. And essentially you, you study that word dwelt and you look back and it has a, a meaning, uh, especially as you have it in connection with the Old Testament, of pitching a tent, which is a tabernacle. The Lord came and he dwelt, he tabernacled among us and we saw his glory Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's what he's always wanted. It's what he's been moving toward. And so he came and he tabernacled or he dwelt among us. And now John, as he writes in his epistle a little bit later, he looks back at that time that he spent with Jesus and the words that he uses as he gives such eloquent expression to the value that he places on just dwelling with God, just having a relationship with God, just being with God. Because he writes... What was from the beginning, what we heard, what we saw, what we've seen with our eyes, what we looked at, what we touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And life was manifested. And we've seen it and testify and proclaim to you 
the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. He came, he dwelt with us, he stayed with us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. Because why? Because indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. It was always the plan. Man kept trying to mess it up, whether in the garden or rejecting him as the king and lord over the nation of Israel. And so he came for the whole world. God dwelt among us. In the upper room discord, the evening that he's going to be betrayed, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit abiding with his followers. In John 14, talking about the Holy Spirit, he says that the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. There's the new plan. It's not just going to be me. In fact, he tells them up there in that upper room, it's better that I'm going to go away. And they're thinking, how can this be better? How can it possibly be better? You, God, with us, you're dwelling with us. Emmanuel, this has always been the plan. I thought, how can this be better? The better is that, He's going to indwell each and every one of you. He's always wanted the relationship. He's always been pushing for that. He's always been striving toward that. He will abide with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. Why? So that I can take you to be with me. We will dwell together. And a few verses later, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, and if he'll keep my word, my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. You see the pattern? You see it? I mean, it's from Genesis all the way through here. Take any of Paul and Peter's or John's epistles. In the book of Ephesians alone, Paul uses the phrase in Christ 13 times, in him eight times, in whom, and he's referring to Christ three times. The whole epistle of Ephesians is saturated with the truth of Christ indwelling and being with the believer. Dwelling with the believer. Relationship with the believer. Fellowship with the believer. Now why is this so hard for us? Why is this so difficult to have a deep abiding relationship with the Lord God who obviously wants that? It falls off just about every page of Scripture. Why is that so hard for us? Uh, sounding like the church lady on Saturday Night Live, uh, could it be sin? Yes. <laughs> sin and the refusal to keep short accounts about our sin. As a child of God, I'm forgiven for all my sin. There is no sin. He sees me in Christ, but relationally, which is what we're talking about here, him dwelling with me, him having a relationship and fellowship with me. Yes, when there's sin, all he wants me to do is to confess it. Yes, I've once again been too entangled by the sin of the world, the flesh, pride of life, all these things. I, I've done it again, Lord, but as soon as I confess it, he truly says, what sin? It's gone. Now our relationship is restored. It was already gone positionally because of what Christ did. But now relationally, it's gone. You agreed. You talked to me like any good relationship. 
I'm sorry. I confess. I did it again. What sin? It's gone. Number two, even though we do that, we have our own inability to believe that God has really removed our sin when we confess. For whatever reason, I struggle with that. I'll own that. Because I'll sit there and see that where my rhetoric and my tone and my words were too harsh with my wife or my grown kids or somebody here on staff or something. There is a ripple effect that takes a while for that sin to kind of have the trust built back up again. And so I can have a tendency when the evil one comes and whispers, oh, are you really forgiven? Yes, yes. But I can focus so much on the ripple effect that I can basically not believe it unless I choose to believe the truth of Scripture. Because there are ripples to our sins. There are things that we do have to face. If I was driving uh, under the influence, yes, I may lose my license. I might lose my job. I might lose whatever. But these are ripples. But if I've confessed it, it's gone from the point of God's view. But we have trouble believing that sometimes because of the rippling effect that takes place. Number three, or it's our own flaws. Our pride. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. But we are full of pride. As was the evil one when he led the rebellion. So the idea that I can bring nothing to this relationship with an all-powerful, all-wise all-sufficient being, I can bring nothing to this relationship besides myself as a living sacrifice. We struggle a little with that. I think the easiest way to explain why we struggle sometimes is the fourth thing I've got here. We just don't spend enough time with him in his word. That's his primary means of talking to us, to teach us, to tell us what he wants us to know. It's just like talking to a spouse or one of your other family members or a friend. Or we don't spend any time in prayer or not enough time in prayer. So that when we speak to him, he has a chance to not only hear what's on our heart, but we have a chance to hear him speaking back to us through the prayer time. I don't know any relationship, marriage, parenting, friendship, any relationship that if you don't spend any time with them, it's not a relationship. I do a lot of marriage counseling here, as does Bob Thornton. And time and time again, when I ask the most simple questions like, well, when's the last time y'all sat down and had a meal? When's the last time y'all actually talked about something? When's the last time you went on a date? When's the last time? And it doesn't take very many of those, and I start to get a real sense that not much of a relationship here. You're living kind of two separate lives. We do that with the Lord oftentimes, that we just don't spend the time. That's why I'm constantly talking about the importance of a daily personal devotional time with the Lord. Reading the scriptures, letting him speak to me, praying, talking to him. A few minutes a day, over a lifetime, what a difference it makes. So think about where we've been here this morning as I have to wrap this up. The picture of God dwelling with his people. It comes to kind of a culmination in Revelation 21. It's a, it's a picture that started back in the mind of God and the power of God in the Garden of Eden. And it continues to develop throughout biblical history. 
God dwelt with human beings in the Garden of Eden. Then he started dwelling with human individuals that were seeking after him after that. Then he went on to establish a tabernacle with a nation of Israel, eventually a temple with them. Finally, he sends the Lord Jesus Christ to dwell with men. Now in this present age, he sends his spirit so that the church can have the indwelling of the Spirit of God, and they've become the dwelling place of the temples of God. And then when you look at the final book in the Scriptures, Revelation 21, the future New Jerusalem is a consummation of all these ways that God has been seeking to have fellowship, relationship, and to dwell with his people. We started at the very beginning by talking about the importance to God of dwelling among his people, among his creation. He does that because of his great love for us. He's created within us a need to do that with him because of the way he's made us. And we have a deep need for communion with him that can't be met by any other thing. Now, how would that relationship with God look? From his perspective, I bring up two last verses as I close. Revelation 3.20 and John 15.15. In Revelation 3.20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I'll come in to him. I'll dine with him and him with me. I mean, he gives us the perfect picture. Back before the COVID thing hit, Laura and I enjoyed having many of y'all over the house. It was nice to spend unhurried time just dining, just sitting, just talking, developing the relationship, knowing one another in a different way, hearing stories about you, listening, discussing. It was lovely. That's the picture he gives. That's what I want. I want a relationship where we're dining together. I come in because you invited me in. I knocked. You let me in. Now we're dining together. John 15, 15. Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, you know, I no longer call you slaves, for a slave doesn't know what its master is doing. But now I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from the Father, I've made known to you. That's what I want to do. I want to make known to you my thoughts. I want to make known to you my father's thoughts. I want to make known to you what it is to be a friend of God. I want to dine with you. I want to be your friend. I want to make known the deep mysteries of the eternals. That's it. We are the problem. He is not. We can choose to start anew, to confess that we haven't done this, and then to seek him. He who wants to be our friend, to dwell, to fellowship, to tabernacle among us. Let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you never have given up in the history of humans. You seek to dwell among us, your creation. And now, for so many of us, we are children of God because of Christ's sacrifice. So help us to fellowship with you, to seek after you, heart, mind, soul. Help us to be about your work, we pray. Amen.